Chairman, please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to Luke's Gospel. Uh, we'll look at verses, uh, well, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you. We are uh, finishing up a series here. We're going to start a new series, just to let you know. Next week, um, the new year, we will look at uh, Genesis 1 through 3, probably. We might tack on chapter 4, maybe chapter 5, or keep going if we're all really fascinated by it. But um, uh, the plan is for Genesis 1 through 3, uh, for a little while, I'm going to answer all of your burning questions about uh, the origins, uh, the, the story of um, God there at the beginning of everything and, and his people, um, starting with uh, the question, can we know everything about the beginning of the human race? And the answer to that is no. So uh, just a little taste of what it'll be like. Um, we, we can't answer every question, but we will uh, look at what the Bible has to say there, Genesis 1 through 3, starting next week. Uh, this week, we've got our last of a series that we've been taking uh, through Advent this time to look at the women who are recorded in uh, Jesus' genealogy that appears in Matthew 1. Uh, the women there, there are five of them, and we're finishing up here with uh, talking about Mary this morning. They're all uh, marginalized. They're all, they've got reputations that, uh, for one reason or another, are uh, questionable moral reputations, um, Mary is a little bit distinct from some of the others. She's, she's actually a, a pretty good girl, right? She's, uh, she's pretty faithful. She's not perfect. The, the Bible says she needs grace uh, just as much as anybody else does. But, um, but she's, uh, she's not got a terrible reputation until Jesus comes into her life, really. Uh, then things get turned upside down. Meeting Jesus for her shakes things up, turns uh, expectations, turns all of life upside down, and that's, uh, that's going to be true for all of us. Uh, if, our, if our highest goal in life is to have kind of a tidy, neat, easy, controlled, uh, safe existence, then um, encountering Jesus like Mary did is uh, something you don't want to have that as a part of your tidy, neat, controlled, safe existence, right? It's, it's going to be a huge threat to that. Jesus is a huge threat to um, having life uh, as we would like it with our own expectations. Who Jesus is, uh, how he comes to us, the effect of having a relationship with him, all of it uh, means the upheaval and overthrowing of our lives. So I want to try to persuade you this morning that that's actually a good thing. It's actually a good thing. Um, good news. So let me pray, and then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, again, we're glad that you've not left us uh, on our own. You've not left us in the dark. You've shined the light of your word into this world, and uh, we do have uh, your word before us now, and it is a, a beautiful one, and we pray that you would um, let it, um, even though it may be familiar to us, let it have an effect on us. Let, it, uh, let your word overthrow us. Cause us to be receptive to your word and to Christ uh, by your Spirit's work inside of us, changing us from the inside out. We need that, and we ask for it in, in Jesus' name. Amen. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. 
But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So this encounter, which is, again, familiar to us, especially this time of year, we hear it uh, read uh, annually, sometimes several times during this season. Uh, This encounter... It takes place in the sixth month here, which is mentioned a few times in this passage, which is a reference to the uh, miraculous pregnancy of Mary's relative, Elizabeth. It's an impossible pregnancy, um, like the one that's being described here with Mary. Um, God is the God of impossible things. Um, and so Elizabeth, this, this old woman who's been praying for a child for her whole life, uh, is pregnant now with who will be the, uh, the cousin of Jesus. It will be John the Baptist. Uh, and so this encounter takes place in the sixth month of that, and it leads right into the story of Mary going to greet Elizabeth and singing the, uh, the Magnificat, which is a wonderful, you should go home and read that. Um, actually, this, this, uh, this week I was planning on preaching that, but I decided to back up and preach uh, this passage instead. Um, but uh, this encounter is, you've got Gabriel, who is a messenger of good news. He's the one who comes from God, directly from the throne room to bring good news to people uh, about God's favor to encourage people here, Mary in particular. Um, he'd, he'd appeared six months earlier to Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, when he was in the temple. And now he appears uh, here in Nazareth. And Nazareth is a, is a nowhere place. It's an insignificant place. It's like calling a place podunk. It's just, um, it's, it's not really on anybody's map as a place of importance. And neither is Mary on anybody's radar as a person of importance. She's insignificant, right? She, she's probably somewhere between uh, 12 and 16 years old, right? Early teens, uh, no pedigree, nothing to commend her. Um, Luke Timothy Johnson is a commentator. He says that Mary is among the most powerless people in her society. She's young in a world that values age, female in a world ruled by men, poor in a stratified economy. That she should have found favor with God shows Luke's understanding of God's activity as surprising and often paradoxical, almost always reversing human expectations. So the fact that Gabriel is coming to to Mary is a surprise to everybody. And um, it says in uh, in our passage, he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, or uh, another translation for that is, Rejoice, one who has received grace. Literally, um, you've received grace, rejoice. The Lord is with you. 
But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So that's Bible language for she was scared out of her mind, right? She, um, she didn't have her wits about her anymore. When Gabriel appeared uh, earlier in the scriptures, 600 years ago, he appeared to Daniel, uh, and, and Daniel passed out from fear, and Daniel was a pretty courageous fellow. If you read the book of Daniel, he's encountered some things that kind of strain um, one's courage and faced them well, and uh, he passed out in the presence of Gabriel. Gabriel's name means God is my strength. God is my strength. So the angel that represents the strength of God himself, who came directly from the throne room in heaven, uh, even if his words are encouraging, it's just going to have a hard time coming across as friendly and warm and comforting, right? This angel whose name means God is my strength. So the poor girl was uh, scared witless, and the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So we've got hints of that in our um, Old Testament passage in the song we sang earlier, uh, The People That in Darkness Sat. But um, So Gabriel's job description is to carry good news to God's people. That's like his job description, right? That's what he lives for, to carry good news to God's people. And this is the best news anyone ever heard. You might be tempted to take it as a threat. If you're reading it closely, you might be tempted to take his words here as a threat. He's talking about a king that's going to rule over you forever. Right? A king whose very existence means that you can't dictate your own life anymore. Um, but really, this news is not a threat to us. It's, uh, it's comfort and joy to us. It should be taken as comfort and joy. The essence of what Gabriel was sent by God to say is that Mary's son, this, this miracle child, this impossible child, uh, would, would be God in the flesh. That's what Gabriel is saying. He'd be God in the flesh. He's going to be both God and man. He's the divine son of God, and he's the human son of David, the king of God's people. And, um, and as it said in our uh, Old Testament reading from Isaiah 9, uh, it's a prophecy. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer says <clears throat> about this, the, uh, the authority of this poor child will grow. It will encompass all the earth, and knowingly or unknowingly, all human generations until the end of the ages will have to serve it. The mysterious, invisible authority of the divine child over human hearts is more solidly grounded than the visible, resplendent power of earthly rulers. Ultimately, all authority on earth must serve only the authority of Jesus Christ over mankind. With the birth of Jesus, the great kingdom of peace has begun. And so with this, uh, I mean, this is the most profound mystery. As we sing, uh, what child is this? In, in wonder. Um, and it's the most important thing anyone could ever know is what's contained here in this passage. 
Mary, the poor girl, she didn't really have her theological thinking cap on. She got kind of hung up on the mechanics of the whole business. She asked the angel, how is this supposed to happen since I'm a virgin? Um, and it may be that she was actually too young to be able to have children. Uh, at the very least, she's saying kind of the necessary biological interactions hadn't yet taken place for her to uh, become pregnant in the normal way. Uh, she may have had some suspicion that Gabriel wasn't talking about the normal biological processes of pregnancy, or she might have just blurted out in her stunned confusion, still trying to recover from the angel's presence. Um, either way, uh, it provides opportunity for Gabriel to clarify for all of us, um, for Mary and for all of us, the unique divine origin of Jesus. We probably would have expected, if we were here uh, in the room, a fly on the wall, probably would have expected Gabriel to say, well, yes, when you get a little older and your fiancé takes you to be his lawfully wedded wife and you have that magical honeymoon tie, then you're going to conceive and bear a child. Uh, That's not what he says, right? Uh, He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And, um, and he says, nothing will be impossible with God, right? Remember Elizabeth, the barren old woman is pregnant now. God can do whatever he wants, and this is what he wants. And N.T. Wright says that the story makes it clear that Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb before she had any sexual relations, right? That's why we confess it in our Apostles' Creed uh, uh, that Jesus was born of the Virgin, Mary. Um, and as, as the Nicene Creed says, and he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Right? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And this is nothing like the religious myths that were actually common at the time uh, where you've got lustful gods sneaking into women's apartments and forcing themselves upon uh, human women that then bear demigod children, kind of half-breeds like Hercules or whatever. Um, it's not like that story. It's, not, uh, it's, it's nothing like those stories. None of the Gospels even record a conception account. Uh, they, don't, they don't record uh, some, some magical moment when Mary's lifted off her bed and you know, light is glowing all around her, and she's floating there, and then you know, okay, now, okay, yes, she must have conceived now. Um, the, the scriptures don't record that kind of account. They, they just record Gabriel's word. It's God's word that comes to her and, and creates right? new life. Um, just this prophecy, just this foretelling, and then she's discovered to be with child. Uh, so no magic moment there. There's no big event, no rapturous encounter, no mystical experience. It's simply the creative power of God the Most High through his spirit and, and, and by this very word. Um, so that means that Jesus' humanity was a new creation. Uh, he has no earthly father. He has no human father. His father is God. And that's why Gabriel says that's why he's going to be called the Son of God. Right? Um, yet he's connected with our humanity. Uh, He is a human, and he's born of uh, Mary. So he's connected with our humanity through his mother. And this, the angel says, explains why he's called holy. He's different. He's set apart. And he's he's the son of God. He's he's God come in the flesh, right? As a person, Jesus has two natures. He has one divine nature, and he has one human nature. Fully, truly divine, fully God, and fully and truly human He's got those two natures united in one person. And as a person, 
then he has only one father, and that's God. Uh, And this is what's signified in the virgin birth. The only explanation of this account is that Jesus is uniquely among all who ever lived. He's the only one who's like this. He's both God and man. That's... uh, there's never been anyone, anyone else like this. He's not a demigod. He's not an angel dressed up as a human. He's not a superhuman. Um, he's very God, and he's very man in one person. And the, the fancy technological, techni- tech, theological, technical language for that is uh, it's, it's the hypostatic union. It's the personal union of the divine and the human natures in one person. Before the conception of Jesus' humanity... Before that, just backing up, before his conception in the womb, uh, the Son of God was from all eternity. He was begotten of the Father before all worlds. And he was together with the, the, the Spirit and the Father. He was one God. Right? That's before his conception, the Son of God was always. So the Son preexisted the conception and the birth of Jesus. Um, and at the right time, then he added the human nature to himself. He didn't give up what he was. He took on what he was not. Right? He took on humanity. He took on that human nature. John says in his gospel, uh, which we read on Christmas Eve, that the word became flesh. So in his two natures, then, because he's got both the divine and human nature, um, he is the mediator. He's the go-between. Right? He's the mediator between God and humanity. He represents God to us because he is God, and he represents us to God because he's us. He's human. Um, As a human who never sinned, uh, throughout his his whole life, enjoying perfect fellowship with God, always obeying God's law, uh, never sinning, always loving God and his neighbors, um, as a human who never sinned, he was able to substitute himself for us. He lived as we were always meant to live, as we were made to live, but we don't because we're sinners. He substituted his life for us, and then he substituted himself uh, on the cross, died in our place for our sins. Right? So um, Donald McLeod says that uh, the race needs a redeemer, needs someone to come in and take our humanity and fix it and present it to God. And free us from sin and free us from uh, the death that we deserve under God's wrath and, and from hell itself. The race needs a redeemer but cannot itself produce one. The redeemer must come from the outside. Because broken people can't fix what's broken about themselves. We had to have the whole person come from the outside. We had to have God himself come in the flesh, come to be our redeemer. So he came from eternity. He came. And as God, his union with humanity in himself, in one person, in his person, it speaks clearly of his goodwill toward us, doesn't it? It speaks clearly of his commitment toward us, that God would be willing to do this, that he would be willing to take humanity into his very person forever, and that would never change. It speaks of his goodwill and his commitment, and and it's the foundation for our trust in God. It's the foundation for our knowledge of God. This is the God that we can know because we've seen him and uh, touched him. The, the Bible says, you know, the, the, the witnesses have had this tangible experience with him. It's God in the flesh. We can know who God is, and he's this kind of God. He's the God who's willing to take on flesh to be our redeemer. Because he is God in the flesh, we can know him 
and we can be assured of his love for us. Um, and after his death on the cross for us, God raised him from the dead, his father raised him from the dead, and gave him as a human, he's the God-man, but now as a human, he gave him the throne of David, the everlasting kingdom over all humanity, as, as a human. Right? He has all authority in heaven and on earth as a human. Just one of us. Right? Um, he has all authority in heaven and on earth. So now, <clears throat> as both God and man, Jesus lives forever, and he'll never cease to be both God and man uh, living for us. Um, he resides physically as a human, in heaven, at the right hand of God, praying for us, representing us there. It's the fact that he is there, that we have a place there, that our humanity can go into God's very presence in heaven um, because he's there for us right now. And it's as the Spirit unites us to his humanity that we receive the benefits of his humanity, which is union with God. His humanity is in union with God, and that's the benefit that we get by being in union with him through faith in Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit's uh, work to unite us to him. So his own humanity is united to his own divinity in himself, and as we have solidarity with him and unity, union with him, uh, so also we participate in the very life of the Son of God. We have his relationship with the Father. Right? That's the essence of our salvation, is to be brought into the relationship with the Father that Jesus himself has as a gift of his grace. Uh, being able to call his father our father. So uh, Irenaeus said that he became, the son of God became what we are in order to enable us to become what he is. So he came to grant us his own relationship with the father. That's the benefit that we enjoy when we pray, when we pray to God, our father who art in heaven, right? The way that Jesus taught us to pray, the atmosphere of that prayer, the relationship that we enjoy is one with God as our father, not just a friend. He's our friend, not just a friend. He's our father. And uh, that's what we remember at the table every week, the fact that we participate through the Spirit in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father. Right? At this table, it's the Father and the Son having a relationship and inviting us in, into the place of the Son himself. That's what we get because of who Jesus is and because he came into the world that the word became flesh and was born of a virgin, right? the son of the most high. That's, that's, uh, that's all true because of the virgin birth. The virgin birth means God's very presence among us as one of us. It's the meeting of God and the whole world in one person, Jesus Christ. He's the center of the universe. Right? Um, and it's an inconceivable mystery. It's the mystery. It is the mystery. Saying what we've said about the incarnation doesn't remove the mystery. It points to it and establishes it and says, this is what the mystery is. Jesus is God and man. Right? That's the Christian message. Jesus is God and man. We're not quite sure how that all works. We know that it is true, not necessarily how it's true. We know that it is true. That's the mystery. Right? That's what we're... He is, cre he is creator and he's creature. Right? He is eternal and historical. He is infinite and definite. So, um, Augustine uh, wrote this, Man's maker was made man. 
that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. He's, he's got his finger on the mystery. The mystery of the revelation of God is Jesus. He's the impossible person. His birth is impossible. Um, but he is who he is. God has done it, for nothing will be impossible with God. Uh, N.T. Wright says that this is the reality, this, this Christmas reality is the reality which shows up the rest of reality. Richard Sibbs, who was a, a, an English theologian, Puritan, late 1500s, early 1600s, <clears throat> said that um, we cannot too often meditate on these things. It is the life and soul of a Christian. It is the marrow of the gospel. It is the wonder of wonders. We, ne- we need not wonder at anything after this. So I think we know somewhat instinctively, you just read the passage, you know instinctively the significance of the virgin birth. There's something profound here. Um, There's something wonderful here. And if we could just deny it, if we could set it aside, kind of deny the truth of this passage, then we could maybe minimize uh, who Jesus is and, and his claim to be king over us. We can maybe minimize that or, uh, you know, rationalize it away or just dismiss it altogether. The ramifications of Jesus as a person, who he is, who he is to us, we, we can maybe ignore those things if we can just ignore this passage, right? Um, then he'd no longer be a threat to our self-rule. The divine human king coming to the world to rule forever and, and overthrowing our rule of ourselves, um, Jesus' enemies knew this, and it's recorded in the Gospels that they mocked him as being an illegitimate child. Can't obviously cannot acknowledge the fact that he's the Son of God, born of a virgin, this this impossible miracle child. You cannot acknowledge that. You've got to laugh it off. You've got to uh, pretend that he's illegitimate, right? Or joke about it, or um, try to minimize the significance of it. They tried to deny the miraculous nature of his birth, and therefore, by doing that, they hoped they could deny who he actually is, the significance of his person as both divine and human. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to do that? Only if you hear this news as a threat, right? It's a threat to my self-rule. It's a threat to my autonomy. Um, Only if you hear it as a threat. Only if the most important thing to you is your own supremacy, you dictating your own life. Then let's make light of the virgin birth. Why would you want to do that? Only if you, you saw it as a threat. But his, his authority is wonderful. It's not like our authority. It's not like what we expect a king to be. Right? Uh, his authority is good. Our authority... Our authority is power for the sake of self. I'm going to get everything for myself. The more power I have, the more authority I have, the more other people would serve me. 
the more this world would bend in toward me. But his authority is to give himself for the sake of others. He has the authority to lay down his life for others. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, as our Redeemer, even for those who don't deserve it. That's all of us. Um, Karl Barth says that the incarnation is the work of the love of God. It's the work of the love of God to a world distinct, nay, divided from him to a creature which he does not need, which has nothing to offer him, to which he owes nothing, which rather is permanently indebted to him for everything which has forfeited its existence in his eyes. We've forfeited our existence in God's eyes in the incarnation, the person of Jesus Christ, the divine human one, is the work of God's love toward people like us. If you want to know God, if you really want to know God as he truly is, in all of his freely gracious love, then this news about God coming in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ is, is beyond good news. Right? It's everything. You need it. Jesus is God come to us in love and mercy of his own free will so we have a God who freely chooses to do something like that, who free, freely chooses in the person of his son to unite his divine nature with our humanity forever. We have a God who chose this and did this when we were far from deserving it, when we were his enemies. And this is the good news. Uh, Martin Luther says this, whenever you're concerned to think and act about your salvation, you must put away all speculations about the majesty, all thoughts of works, traditions, and philosophy, indeed, even the law of God itself, and you must run directly to the manger and the mother's womb, embrace this infant and virgin's child in your arms, and look at him, born, being nursed, growing up, going about in human society, teaching, dying, rising again, ascending above all the heavens, and having authority over all things, in this way, when you look at this one, in this way you can shake off all the terrors and errors as the sun dispels the clouds. So you can see how this truth about Mary's child um, is uh, the kind of thing that turns everything upside down. It might make your life unpleasant in a lot of ways. Um, not ruling your own life, not controlling things for yourself. Um, but you can see how it's the most important truth that there is. It's the most important truth in Christian faith and thinking, the most important truth that anyone could ever consider. It's the truth that makes everything else really irrelevant by comparison. The truth that uh, we, we who know it are indebted to tell to those who don't know it. I mean, if you care about this truth at all, you're going to talk about it. That's just how it works. In Jesus, we have God himself. So we have proof that we can know God, that we can trust God, that we can be united to God forever through faith in him. And our only possible response, then, can be to echo Mary, whose life was about to be turned upside down um, beyond all imagining, yet who saw it as the greatest blessing and favor and grace of God Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word.
Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your help in uh, opening up our hearts to you, to your gospel, to who Jesus is. We pray that you would um, make this truth firm in our minds, that you would help our minds to grasp, um, not, not to comprehend everything about the God-man, but to, um, to hold on to this truth about the God-man for our salvation, for, for our life, for our delight, for our relationship with you. Uh, we pray that you would help us uh, by your grace. We know that you came into the world because you are gracious, and so we know we're not offering these prayers in vain, and we offer them to you uh, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.